big issue with CO2 utilization is that CO2 is energetically dead. The challenge lies in reducing operational and capital costs to the point where CO2 utilization is economically beneficial to both producer and consumer. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about a second life for CO2. Many of you may consider CO2 a pollutant. One of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast, now hitting its three-year anniversary, is because the conversation doesn't end there. My guest today proves it. As you heard in the cold open, CO2 is inert. It's at the bottom of an energy well and happy to stay there. But if you can wake it up, the potential to create more energy is tremendous. The problem is that it takes energy to crack CO2 into CO, or carbon monoxide. My guess says waste heat and surplus energy, like off-peak renewable electricity, are ideal. You can then add hydrogen to create just about any hydrocarbon imaginable. I've dabbled in this sector over the years. The biggest potential I've seen is ethanol plants. A byproduct of ethanol is pure CO2. You capture that, run it through one of the processes my guest describes, and you could actually make more ethanol out of the CO2 produced from the original ethanol. At least one expert I've spoken to believes you could probably make another 30% out of the CO2 produced at an ethanol plant. I'll concede, and my guests will too, that ethanol, methanol, butanol, it will all probably find its way into the atmosphere. But if you consider that the CO2 to create it came from an energy source like coal, oil, natural gas, that CO2 has a chance to produce another round of energy, and that's a net carbon reduction. You also combine this with CO2's potential to be sequestered into building materials, and you see how carbon can become an important commodity. My guest today is Joe Staffa, Technology Manager for Utilization at the National Energy Technology Laboratory in Morgantown, West Virginia. NETL is a division of the Department of Energy, and this is the second of two interviews I was fortunate enough to get with that group. Before moving up to Technology Manager, Joe was a Project Manager overseeing several of the projects the department funds at any given time. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joe Staffa. We are here with Joe Staffa, Technology Manager for Carbon Utilization at the National Energy Technology Laboratory, Department of Energy. And Joe, when I was Executive Director of the Clean Coal Technology Foundation of Texas, we spoke a lot about sequestration, a lot about enhanced oil recovery, but very little about the utilization of CO2. When did you see a shift towards utilization as part of this conversation? Well, Jay, I think it's always been part of the conversation while I've been with DOE. So I first started in 2008, and even at that time, there was some interest in CO2 utilization technologies under the Innovative Carbon Capture and Storage Programs. But I would say it began to attract more attention within the past two or three years. There's been language in the appropriations bills which specifies funding for carbon use and reuse. In the most recent budget, FY2020, the utilization program is $21 million. So this is an area that's increased importance in the past few years. 
I feel like the world has decided that CO2 is a pollutant and it never needs to be created in the first place. But with CCUS, you see it as a commodity. Wouldn't you agree? There's a lot of beneficial things to do with it. Yeah, when I see CO2 utilization as an opportunity for large-scale energy arbitrage, our goal is to support the development of technologies that can time-shift energy supply by utilizing either low-cost electricity and or waste heat to transform CO2 into higher-value products. Of course, the big issue with CO2 utilization is that CO2 is energetically dead. It's at the bottom of a very deep energy well. It's quite happy to stay there. The challenge lies in reducing operational and capital costs to the point where CO2 utilization is economically beneficial to both producer and consumer. And to address the point of CO2 emissions, there are going to be processes that emit CO2 for the foreseeable future, whether that's concrete production, power plants, or air and space vehicles. In my opinion, we should try to utilize it to the greatest extent practicable. Well, you're talking about it at the molecule. It's functionally dead. <laughs> it's extremely inert, right? It takes yeah. a lot of energy to crack it right and get oxygen and carbon monoxide all those beneficial things out of it yeah correct you have to put a lot of energy into it to transform it into something more useful if you're trying to produce a chemical or fuel from co2 i want to dive into some of the technologies that are out there how would you break down the families of utilization I'll say that currently we have about 40 active projects in our portfolio. <laughs> I would classify them by their mechanism of operation. We have biological projects, chemical and electrochemical or direct utilization. Under the biological approaches, that's where you have either algae conversion or microbial conversion. Those are usually utilizing waste heat to transform CO2 into some longer chain hydrocarbon that you might try to use as a diesel fuel replacement or a petrochemical feedstock. Then we have the chemical and electrochemical processes. Those are with conventional catalysts. There's some work on plasma reforming or fuel cells to upgrade CO2 to intermediate forms. That's where you would get your methanol, ethanol, ethylene, etc. And the other group is direct incorporation of CO2, often into building materials such as concrete, which is a potentially large market. Right. I think I heard one time with the construction materials, we could take all this CO2, we could convert it into essentially concrete, but we would almost have to rebuild our highway system, just so much of it. Yeah, that's one of the large problems with CO2 utilization is the scale of the problem. In the U.S., we release about five and a half billion tons of CO2 annually. The largest consumer of that currently is EOR, which is like one and a half percent of those CO2 emissions. There's enough CO2 to go around. I think there's a lot of folks who would say, yes, I know you don't produce oil in North Carolina, for instance, where I am, but EOR is the most lucrative solution for CO2. It's only a pipeline away from the oil field. Essentially, we could take all the CO2 and rather do all these utilization technologies, use it for EOR instead. We know that works. But what would you say to that? Sell us on why we should consider utilization before we immediately go to enhanced oil recovery. I would say big picture again, there's enough to go around. <laughs> you know, it's even though we couldn't use all of CO2 for EOR, we just don't have that many EOR opportunities. You can almost think of CO2 utilization in a way as a form of energy storage. I can kind of think of energy arbitrage where you're 
using either low-cost waste heat or electricity to transform CO2 into some higher-value product that has a longer storage life, easily transportable, high-energy density. That's where I see the technology going. You mentioned all these different families. Let's go to construction materials. How is CO2 being used for that? One of the more promising classes of technologies is using CO2 in gas form in curing concrete. As you transform the minerals in the concrete to calcium carbonate, you're trapping the carbon as you cure it. And sort of like the EOR example, I think this technology is promising because the concrete market is significant and it looks like this could add value also to both the producer and consumer. And there may be some legislation in certain locales related to the carbon footprint of concrete. So this can assist with that as well. CO2 to fuels is a big winner in my mind because you would apparently never run out of demand. Yeah. Look, you could offset a lot of the conventional production by converting it to fuels. Now, explain kind of how that's done. You're using a catalyst to break up CO2 and then you would reform it. Yeah, so you're trying to take it to a higher energy state, removing an oxygen and adding some hydrogen to get a syngas mixture of hydrogen gas and carbon monoxide. And then once you have those two basic building blocks, you can go wherever you want through a variety of synthesis. And in that case, you might try to produce an ethylene as like a petrochemical feedstock. You might try to produce a fuel directly. For this to work, you either need low cost electricity or significant amounts of waste heat. And I think as more renewables and intermittent sources come online, the price difference between peak and off-peak electricity is increasing. And as I said, that kind of goes to the idea of CO2 utilization as a form of energy storage. It'll have a relatively low round-trip efficiency, but you produce something that's easily transportable and has a very high energy density. Well, we talk about this a lot on this program, is this idea of energy storage, particularly what to do with all the surplus renewables. And I know a lot of people out here be like, why would you use renewable energy to benefit fossil? But is that an option to use a lot of surplus electricity to break up CO2 for something like this? It depends on the economics, of course. I think it will move in that direction. Right now, there aren't that many times of year where the electricity price goes negative. You get paid to take electricity. But I think as more renewables and intermittent sources come online, especially if energy storage doesn't keep up and there aren't new high voltage transmission lines, then obviously there's going to be a arbitrage opportunity between on-peak and off-peak electricity rates. You're a guy who probably has seen a lot of different technologies out there. What are some of the most promising ways you see of cracking that CO2 molecule efficiently and economically? Yeah, so I think both the biological approaches we're looking at as well as the chemical and electrochemical have potential. It just depends on whether your waste energy or your low-cost energy is in the form of heat or electricity. Both the conversion and the microbial conversion are interesting. Those are a little bit different, obviously, in that the algae is just CO2 and light, so photosynthesis, whereas the microbial also requires a nutrient, but they produce a little bit of a different product suite depending on what you want. And I think both have potential. On the chemical and electrochemical side, it's just trying to take an oxygen away from that carbon dioxide and add some hydrogen, shift it over to get syngas, and then you can go where you want from there. Of course, there's so much CO2 that I expect the higher value chemicals, those will probably be kind of the lowest hanging fruit. And then as the market prices for those change, as more supply comes online, you'll have to move into some more commodity chemicals.
A lot of critics would say, if you're taking CO2 and turning it into fuel, like ethanol, won't it wind up in the atmosphere? How would you answer that? I would agree that it will certainly become CO2 again at some point in the future. But from a carbon emission perspective, I think that's a lower footprint than a single-use fossil fuel. Yeah, so you're using it twice. It's half of the CO2 that would be going in the atmosphere because you're using it again. Correct, correct. And you know, there are going to be some applications, whether air travel or space travel, that require the energy density of liquid fuels for the foreseeable future. I'd assume most of this work is being performed by DOE staffers, but it appears that there are grants to private companies and schools. What's the breakdown? Who is doing the actual science here? In terms of project count and budget. Most of the work is being performed by universities, small businesses. There is also some work at the National Lab. We fund work through cooperative agreements, field work proposals, and grants. Cooperative agreements represent the bulk of the work in terms of project count and funding. Those are the best effort agreements between DOE and various universities and businesses. We also fund a fair bit of work at the nation's national labs, which fall under our field work proposals. And then we also fund work through the SBIR and STTR programs, which are phased grants to small businesses. And so what do you do? Are you managing these groups? Are you working on your own projects? My prior job was as a project manager where I would call these recipients and try to ensure that research is proceeding within scope, schedule, and budget. But in the new position as technology manager for carbon utilization, my goal is to set the overall program priorities. It's kind of like being in control of the checkbook, <laughs> but there are a lot of stakeholders. Obviously, it's not a free reign of the checkbook, but it's setting program direction and ensuring that funds get where they need to go. And for people to understand this, who owns the technology? You're giving a grant, you're investing in these companies. The government doesn't take a slice, right? How does that work? That's correct. And it's the recipients that own the IP. Obviously, if it's work funded at a national lab, then that's a bit of a different situation. But generally, we're funding the work and then we want them to go off and license the IP. That's the best case scenario for us is it's either licensed or they use it themselves. I just imagine our businessman president being like, well, let's make a deal. <laughs> yeah, like that's, yeah. No, I mean, look, every single administration, you said you got involved in 2008. That's when I started coming online with a lot of this technology and through the Bush administration, Obama, now Trump. I think it's pretty consistent. They all want to invest in new energy technologies. Even the Obama administration, their feelings about CO2 and everything, they were pretty consistent, I felt, with the funding for fossil. Yes. Obama did catch some flack for his term, all of the above energy strategy, but that's really what it was. It wasn't all of the above strategy. What about carbon utilization that isn't fuels or construction materials? What kind of purposes are you finding for these? There's also use for CO2 specific power cycles that have the potential for higher efficiencies than steam-based power cycles, but that's using a fixed volume of CO2 rather than consuming CO2. Carbon dioxide also has use for decreasing the viscosity of hydrocarbons. So there are applications in the petrochemical industry where CO2 can help stuff flow better. Those are areas are outside the interest of our carbon utilization program, but there are some applications for CO2. And as you're moving into this role, seeing a lot of technologies out there, paint us a picture. Yeah, I think it'll be continued development under those three main areas, biological conversion, chemical and electrochemical, 
as well as carbon for building materials. And look, I think that the energy landscape is too complex to immediately switch over to energy production that would not make any carbon. I mean, even if you killed all the coal plants, you would still be going to natural gas, natural gas producing CO2. One of the things that I say a lot is, what about carbon capture for natural gas? We almost never hear about that. Carbon's gonna be in our lives for a long time. I think that with groups like yours, there needs to be some very smart ways to do something with all that CO2. Correct. The numbers I've seen suggest that even if we went all in intermittent and renewable, we could get up to probably 80% if you assume there was a nationwide high voltage DC transmission line, which there's not currently. I think until the energy storage catches up and the transmission catches up, we're still going to have significant CO2 emissions. All right, Joe, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. How do you think they fit in the mix? Going to start with natural gas. Last numbers I saw on natural gas, we have 5,000 trillion cubic feet technically recoverable in the U.S. That's about 170 years at today's consumption. We're not going to run out of natural gas. Crude oil. Last year, the U.S. exported more oil than it imported. The first time since 1949, there's been a huge oil boom in the country in recent history that I think is a really good success story. Nuclear. It's CO2-free baseload power and a small footprint. There are also no particulate or NOx or SOx emissions. Coal. And I'll also add coal with carbon capture. Okay. There are over 300 years worth of reserves in the ground. The thermal market has been on a decline for the last decade. But beyond the thermal markets, there's potential applications for building materials. Here at NETL, we have some projects looking at composite decking and roofing, carbon fibers, anode materials for batteries. There are some applications for the carbon inside the coal outside of the thermal markets. Wind. Probably one of the lowest cost of electricity. I've been following along and absolutely amazed by some of these very large-scale offshore turbines. I think now we're getting in the 10 to 12 megawatt range being tested lately. These things are so far offshore and so high in the airstream that it looks like they're going to get capacity factors over 60%, which is just incredible for an intermittent source. Solar. Some pretty amazing progress in price declines over the past decade. Still room for significant price reductions. The majority of the costs are still in the module and labor. As the efficiency increases and the cells become more efficient, your labor costs should go down proportionally. I think there's still a lot of room for price decreases there. Biofuels. Opportunity to convert what's normally a waste product into a higher value product. And could also include some biomass gasification with traditional fossil fuels. I think there's some potential there. Hydroelectric. I put along with geothermal and nuclear and that it's one of our few CO2-free baseload power options. But of course, the issue is there's only so much available and it's hard to envision more coming online. Geothermal then. <laughs> yeah. Right now, their problem is the steam can be kind of dirty, which is tough on the turbines. But I think they'll eventually overcome that. And where the local geology supports it, I think it'll be part of the portfolio. Energy storage. We need a lot more of it. That could be batteries, chemicals, compressed air, pumped hydro, cryogenic air storage, compressed air storage. Electric vehicles. Superior in almost every way to their gasoline counterparts. Energy efficiency. It saves both money and resources. If anyone listening doesn't have LED lighting, they should go buy some. <laughs> for the standard Edison socket, you can now buy those for about $2 in LED. And that literally pays for itself within a few months. For any of these to work, it always has to be better than what it's replacing. 
Yeah. And then finally, fusion power. Yeah, Jay, I don't know that I'm qualified to answer this one. I always, Most people are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've tried to, and I always feel like I'm dividing by zero when I try to evaluate it because you're going to have free electricity, but capital costs are going to be very high. The error bar on that calculation is really large for me. All right. Joe Staffa, NETL, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That was Joe Staffa, Technology Manager for Utilization at NETL in West Virginia. I want to thank Joe for his time, as well as Shelly Martin in the Communications Department for setting this up. I also want to thank Sydney Hughes, also from NETL, who caught one of my presentations at PowerGen last year for getting this ball rolling. You can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host EnergyCast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 81. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how turbines aren't just running on natural gas anymore. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.